Tonight we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 32 together. Exodus 32, verse 7 through verse 14. I was thinking about the fact that in Exodus, really within the span of a relatively few number of chapters, you have the highest high of the history of the nation of Israel and arguably the lowest low of the history of the nation of Israel. You have the highest high in that they were redeemed, rescued by God out of bondage in Egypt and miraculously, supernaturally brought across the Red Sea on dry ground and Pharaoh's entire army drowned in the Red Sea behind them. Then you have, and even in addition to that, then you have this meeting with God at Mount Sinai when God thunders from the mountain and God reveals himself on top of the mountain in earthquake and smoke and fire and demonstrates his power toward his people and then graciously, graciously enters into a covenant with them and they agree to that covenant. The elders of Israel go up to a, a portion of the way on the mountain and they have a meal, a covenant meal of fellowship before the Lord, the highest high. And now, while Moses is still up on the mountain receiving instructions and guidelines for the tabernacle, the place where God will dwell in the midst of his people, the people are down below breaking the very covenant that they had just entered into. And perhaps the, the worst sin and rebellion in the history of Israel as they're in the very presence of God, as God is meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai, and they've been instructed to stay a ways away from the mountain because it's holy, because God's presence is there. And so they're there in the presence of God, and in his presence, they're worshiping an idol that they have made out of gold. And so it's no wonder that in verse 7, we see the Lord tell Moses, how angry and furious he is with these rebellious people. And so we read in Exodus 32, verse 7, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, they have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them 
and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have tonight to look at your word, to learn more about your holy and righteous character, and Lord, also to see on display your mercy in response to the intercession of your servant Moses. God, may we learn more of who you are and more of how you have shown mercy to sinners such as us. Lord, bless this time, I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Really, this passage can be broken down into about three points. And the first point comes from verse 7 through verse number 10, and that is the Lord's holy anger. The Lord's holy anger. And several things come to us out of verses 7 through 10 about the Lord's holy anger. First of all, the Lord's holy anger brings alienation. The Lord's holy anger brings relational alienation. And you can see that in verse number 7, when the Lord says to Moses, go down, notice how he refers to them. He says, because your people, right? All the way up to this point, they've been referred to as my people, the Lord's people, the ones whom the Lord rescued and delivered out of Egypt. But notice how he describes them here. Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt, they have become corrupt and they have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. Alienation. There's, the Lord is in essence distancing himself from his people, even by the use of language here, by saying, at this point, at this moment, I don't want to think of them as my people, so I'm going to refer to them as your people. Your people. In essence, it is as if God is disowning them because they have broken the covenant that he established with them. He calls them Moses' people, not his. And so there's alienation between a holy God and a sinful, rebellious people. And isn't that the story of humanity? Isn't that the grand overarching story of the Bible? Is that there is alienation between a holy, perfect, righteous creator God and a sinful, depraved people. And what we need is someone to stand in the gap, don't we? Moses fills that role in this passage, but we have alienation. You can see that, that theme run through scripture and it starts at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? In the Garden of Eden, you have alienation between Adam and Eve and God. God comes to them looking for them and they're hiding because they're full of shame. They're, they're guilty. And this perfect relationship that existed between Adam and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in perfect harmony, perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, that relationship of peace and harmony was marred when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command. In essence, Adam and Eve did the exact same thing that Israel is doing here. God had no more than said, 
eat of any of the trees that you would like, just do not eat from this one. And the very next thing we read is they're eating from that tree. It's like in Exodus 32, God had no more than just said, do not worship any other gods and do not make any graven images of any gods. And what does Israel do? They make images into gods and make a golden calf into their gods and then have the audacity to say, Here's your gods, O Israel, that delivered you out of Egypt. No wonder God wants to say, I didn't deliver these people. These are your people. They're not even giving me credit for delivering them out of, out of Egypt. I don't want to identify myself with them right now. They're your people. So there's alienation between a holy God and sinful people. So the Lord's holy anger brings alienation. We also see with regard to the Lord's holy anger, that the Lord's holy anger is in response to actual sins that have been committed, right? So the Lord is not just angry for the sake of being angry. The Lord's anger is an aspect, is an outgrowth of the fundamental aspect of his attribute of holiness. Holiness defines who God is. Only one attribute in scripture is said of God three times right in a row. God is holy, holy, holy in Isaiah chapter six. Holiness defines who God is. His wrath towards sin, his anger, his righteous indignation is an outgrowth of that holiness. And it is in response directly to sins, rebellion that has been committed. And so God is angry here, not for no reason. He is angry because his people have directly rejected the covenant that they just entered into. The very words that God has just spoken, do not worship any other gods, do not make any graven images. They have just openly and in the face of God violated that command. And God is rightfully angry. So the Lord's holy anger is in response to actual sins committed. And the interesting thing about this passage, the Lord says they have become corrupt. They've been quick to become corrupt. The Lord emphasizes the quickness of their rebellion. The time, God's timing isn't the same as ours, is it? For the Israelites down at the bottom, they were wondering, man, Moses has been up there a long time. When's this Moses guy coming back? They got restless and they got impatient and they made gods. But God says, how quick, how fast they have turned away from the covenant that they've entered into with me. And so they're called, they've become corrupt. It is a word that indicates depraved moral conduct and that makes people offensive in the sight of God. They've become corrupt. And interestingly, too, there are words and phrases that occur in this passage that are also found in Genesis chapter 6 with the account of the flood. There, there's, there are little words and phrases that, that cause us to, to be reminded of that passage in Genesis 6, where, too, God was angry with sin, wasn't he? In Genesis 6, God was angry with sin, and he brought judgment on a sinful world. Here, he is angry with sin, and he is on the verge of bringing judgment against a rebellious, sinful people. So God's anger, it's holy, and it's in response to sins that have been committed. But also, we see in verse number 9 that the Lord's holy anger 
is also in response to what God rightfully sees in them as the inclinations of their heart. In verse 9, it says, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. In other words, God not only sees what has just transpired, the external action of the rebellion of the golden calf, he not only is rightly responding to that in anger, he also sees deeper than that, doesn't he? He sees deeper than that. He sees down, as Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, the word of God pierces down to the joints and the marrow, to the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God knows these people's hearts. And his his description of them, his judgment of them in knowing their hearts is they are a stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious people. This is the first time that description is used of the Israelites, but it won't be the last. There are several more times throughout the books of Moses that the Israelites are referred to as a stiff-necked people. We see Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 7 refer to the Israelites the same way. Hundreds of years later, after Jesus had come and died and risen again and ascended to heaven, Stephen looks on his fellow Israelites and says, you are a stiff-necked people, just as the words of Moses have said. The people of Israel, a stiff-necked, rebellious people. In other words, they're depraved. They're hard-hearted in their hearts. And God knows that. He sees their hearts. And so his anger is in response, not just to their actual sin of idolatry. His anger is also in response to their heart and the inclinations of their heart toward rebellion and against God. But the last thing I want us to see about the Lord's anger in verse 10 is that the Lord's anger is just and it is righteous. In verse 10 The Lord says to Moses, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Saying this to Moses. In other words, God is saying to Moses, I want to, I want, leave me alone, go away. I want to stew for a while. I want to burn in my anger because I'm then going to judge them. I'm going to wipe them out, much like in a Genesis 6 flood kind of way. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And so, Moses, I am offering to you to become like a new Noah, who starts over again, or like a new Abraham. And I will start all over again with you. God is angry with sin. And the question is, does God have a right to be this angry? He does, doesn't he? God has a right to be this angry. Would God have been just in wiping out the Israelites? He would have been just because the covenant that they entered into, they had just agreed to, was if we don't abide by this, then the judgments of the Lord will fall on us. And the people of Israel said, we will obey. We we want to enter into this covenant. And now they have disobeyed. Just as God's judgment on Adam and Eve was just when they ate of the tree, 
Just as God's judgment of the world was just in Genesis 6 when the world had become corrupt, so also his judgment here is just if he were to destroy the Israelites and start over again with Moses. In principle, God could have still fulfilled his word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by starting with a new line with Moses. It would still be, in principle, fulfilling those words. But God is right. He is just in his anger. I want us to see next in verses 11 through 14. We've seen already the Lord's anger, but now I want us to see Moses' effectual intercession. Moses' effectual intercession, verses 11 through 13. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. And Moses begins to enter into a discussion with Moses, or with God, and Moses is acting as a go-between. He's acting as an intercessor. He's acting as a mediator. And he is pleading for the, the people of Israel on their behalf. And he is seeking mercy from God. Several things that I think are interesting about Moses' intercession. One of them is that Moses' intercession is humble. It's humble. And we see that in a couple of ways. One way that we see it is, it says in verse 11, that Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. It, it is a, that in itself is a phrase that communicates humility. Moses is assuming nothing. He is simply seeking the goodwill, the grace, the favor of his God. And so he's coming in humility before the Lord. But something else that points to the humility of Moses is the fact that Moses does not take the opportunity that God appears to present to him here to basically make a name for himself and start over as a new Abraham. God says to Moses, I'll, I'll wipe out the Israelites and I'll start over with you. But Moses says, no, I'm not going to, I don't care about my own name. Moses did not take that opportunity. He did not take that as something to be used for his own sake. Instead, he sought to intercede on behalf of the people. He identified with them. He identified with the people. And interestingly enough, much like he did back when he was in Egypt and Moses made the choice to identify with God's people, here he is making that choice again. And he's saying, don't rescue me if you're not going to rescue the people. And Moses is identifying himself with the people of Israel. And he does not take the opportunity to make a name for himself. So his intercession is humble. It's humble. And the other interesting thing about this too is that there appears to be, from God's side, a small open door that is an invitation for Moses to take on this role as intercessor. And that, that small open window, that door of invitation is found in the words, leave me alone. When God says, leave me alone so that I may burn in my anger and destroy them, the implication of that is, is that Moses, as long as you are here, standing in the gap, you serve as a way of holding my hand of wrath and anger back against my people. 
Moses' own presence before the Lord served as mediation, served as uh, a buffer, if you will, between the Lord's wrath and sinful people. One of the commentaries I was reading, this is from Victor Hamilton. He says, as, as long as Moses stands there and does not leave God alone, God will not act in judgment against the people. Moses' very presence is a mediator between a holy God and a sinful people. And so the, the point is that, that God, really when saying, leave me alone, did not ultimately want to be left alone. It was an invitation for Moses to stand in that role as intercessor. Another commentator puts it this way, God vows the severest punishment imaginable, but then suddenly he conditions it, as it were, on Moses' agreement. Let me alone that I may consume them. The effect is that God himself leaves the door open for intercession. He allows himself to be persuaded. That is what a mediator is for. So he is essentially inviting Moses to become this mediator, to stand in that role for the sake of his people. And Moses does so humbly and willingly for the sake of his people. So his effectual intercession is humble. Also, his effectual intercession is persevering. Persevering. We don't see it in this passage explicitly. We see it, however, in Deuteronomy 9, verse 25, at a time later on when Moses is reminding the people about this event. Moses says in Deuteronomy 9, verse 25, he says, I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said that he would destroy you. So this intercession of Moses begging for the life of the Israelite people is not a one moment intercession. According to Deuteronomy 9.25, it was a 40 day, 40 night intercession. It was a persevering intercession. And when I came across this, this verse in Deuteronomy 9.25, it reminded me of the passage in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, where Jesus tells the parable of the friend at midnight. Remember that parable? There's a, there's a friend who comes at midnight and says, I have a guest and I don't have anything to feed him. Please give me something that I can give to my guest who is coming to my house. And the man says, go away. We're in bed. It's late at night. Leave us alone. And what does the man do? He keeps knocking, right? He keeps knocking on the door. He keeps being persistent. And really, even beyond persistence, he, he, he becomes bold, doesn't he? He's bold, and he will not go away, and he stays persistent, and he receives, doesn't he? He receives. Finally, the man gets up and gives to him the bread, and he goes back home. And the point that Jesus is making there is, we too, when coming before the throne of grace, he says, ask and keep on asking, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and keep on seeking, and you will find. Boldness and persistence, and we see that characteristic here in Moses as he is interceding on behalf of the people. So his intercession is persistent, persevering. His intercession is reconciliatory. Remember I said that God's anger resulted in alienation? between a holy God and a sinful people, Moses is seeking to bring the parties together. 
His intercession is seeking to be reconciliatory, to bring the parties together. In verse 11, remember how, remember how God referred to the people in verse 7? Not my people, these are your people, Moses. You brought them up out of Egypt. But notice how Moses turns that back around in verse 11. And he says, Lord, why should your anger burn against your people? Whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. What is Moses doing there? Moses, now God has not forgotten that these are his people. But what Moses is doing in acting as an intercessor is God was distancing himself from his people because of their sin. These are your people, Moses. But Moses, in acting as an intercessor, is seeking to draw the people and God nigh, draw them back near again and reconcile them. And Moses is reminding God, these are your people, God. You're their deliverer. You're their redeemer. You're the one that brought them out of Egypt. There's already this relationship that exists between you and these people. You've already rescued them. And so his intercession is seeking to draw them back together. In verse 12, we see that Moses' intercession seeks the glory of God's name. Moses' intercession seeks the glory of God's name. In verse 12, Moses says to God, Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? So turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. His argument in verse 12 is essentially the name and the reputation of God. What was God's, what, what did God say was his purpose in the Exodus event? God said, I am bringing these, these signs, these wonders, these 10 plagues on Egypt so that they, so the world may know that I, the Lord, am God. And now Moses is taking that and reminding God of it and saying, the, you wanted the whole world to know. You wanted the Egyptians to know that you, the Lord, Yahweh, are God. What will they say if you bring them out, rescue them just to destroy them? What, what's Moses's, what, what's his goal here? What's his aspiration? His goal, his aspiration is the fame of God's name. It's God's glory. And, and Moses is seeking not his own interests here, not for him to become a new Abraham, not for him to become uh, the next patriarch. Moses is seeking the glory of God's name. And isn't it interesting that Moses, instead of wanting to become the next Abraham, is instead following in the footsteps of the example of Abraham in being an intercessor for sinful people. That's why I read from Genesis 18 earlier. Because Abraham was acting as an intercessor before God. And Abraham was negotiating with God. God, will you not show mercy for the sake of ten? Even if there are ten there in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is acting as that intercessor. Moses is following in that example and doesn't want to take Abraham's place. He wants to follow in Abraham's example and be an intercessor for his people. And so Moses is seeking the glory of God's name. In verse 13, we see that Moses' intercession relies on, is, is claiming the revealed word of God. So he's building his intercession on the promises of God. 
He says in verse 13, Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Moses is reminding God of what God has already said. In his word, his promises to Abraham, the covenants that he made with Isaac and with Jacob. He's reminding God, he's building his argument, his plea for God to show mercy. He's building it on the very promises and words of God. His appeal is entirely directed to God and to his character, his reputation and his past actions. One commentator puts it this way, Moses prays the way that he prays, not because of what he knows about his people, but he prays the way he does because of what he knows about his God. He's praying for the sake of the glory of God. He's praying based on the words of God. Moses can pray this way because he knows God. Another commentator said this about this this really bold intercession of Moses. He said, only those who have stood for 40 days and nights alone with a holy God, only those who are God's confidants will pray at this depth and with this audacity. In other words, those who really know God and have gotten close to God can pray with this kind of boldness before the throne of God. And so Moses is seeking not his own good, but he's seeking the glory of of God and building on his word. And the last thing that we see in this passage is the Lord's mercy. So we've seen the Lord's anger. Now we're seeing the Lord's mercy and the Lord in, in verse number 14, he relents and he does not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. Now there have been some that have jumped on that verse and said, ah, here, see, God is not all knowing. God, he changes his mind. God can change. So one of the orthodox doctrines of scripture is that God is immutable. He is unchangeable in his nature, his person, his attributes. Some have jumped on this and said, ah, God here changed his mind. But this is not, God, this is not out of the character of God at all. In fact, we can find all the way through scripture where God threatens judgment. And we can even read this explicitly in the prophets, where in the prophets it is said that God may vow to bring judgment, but if those people repent, that is within the right of God to not bring the judgment. And it's not that God does not know what's going to happen here. It's not as if God is somehow caught off guard by any of this. It's not as if he doesn't know that Moses is going to intercede. That is why God opens the door and in the invitation for Moses to intercede. God's not caught off guard here at all. But the Lord does show mercy, doesn't he? So how do we get from a holy, righteous God who is angry with sin to now he's going to show mercy and not destroy? What happened in the middle? A mediator, right? An intercessor. Moses here is a type and a foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in many ways, we see it unfolding in this passage. Like the people of Israel, 
our sins rightly alienate us from God, don't they? Like the people of Israel, our sins alienate us from God. God's anger justly burns against us as sinners, not only for our multitude of actual committed sins, but also because of the natural evil bent and inclination of our depraved hearts. We, like the Israelites, are naturally a rebellious and stiff-necked people. The Lord's severe judgment is just. The Lord's severe condemnation on us of the fires of hell would be just and rightly deserved because of our sin. But praise be to God, we have an intercessor, just like the Israelites had an intercessor. We have an intercessor, we have a mediator in the man Christ Jesus, don't we? He, like Moses, humbled himself, left the glories of heaven, took upon him humanity, was made in the form of a servant. He came not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So like Moses, he humbled himself and he came to bring honor and glory to the name of God, didn't he? In this prayer of intercession, Moses is pleading for the sake of God's name, for his glory. Jesus also came ultimately to glorify and honor God. John chapter 12, verse 27 says this. Jesus said, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Like Moses, Jesus was ultimately concerned with the glory of God's name. Jesus came in fulfillment of the promises and the covenants of God to his people. Those same promises that Moses refers to, God, remember your promises to Abraham and and to Isaac and to Jacob. It is those same promises that paved the way for the Messiah to come and fulfill. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection accomplishes and fulfills the revealed word of God. Jesus' intercession for us is based on the requirements of atonement set forth in God's revealed word. Like God's merciful and gracious response to Moses' intercession, the Father is favorably disposed to hear the effectual intercession of the Son, isn't he? God responded to Moses' intercession with mercy. God responds to the intercession of the Son with mercy and forgiveness. So we stand forgiven and justified because of the great intercession of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Left to ourselves, we would stand in jeopardy of the judgment that God threatened on Israel. But with Christ, we are not only saved from that holy wrath, we are welcomed into the covenant people of God. Like Moses remained in God's presence and acted as a mediator between the holy God and his rebellious people, we have a great high priest who remains in the presence of God. At his right hand, acting as our mediator and pleading our cause before him. What this passage reveals to us is that we worship a holy, righteous God who justly 
burns with anger against sin. But we also have a great intercessor who pleads our cause before him and receives on our behalf mercy and forgiveness. Praise be to God that we have one greater than Moses. One greater than Moses who is at the right hand of the Father pleading our case before him. And because of our great intercessor, Jesus Christ, you and I can stand forgiven. You and I can be called the people of God. And you and I can worship a holy God. And we can come before him ourselves now. And come before his throne of grace because of the way that has been opened up for us through Christ. We now can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. And we can plead for God's mercy through the name of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for our great intercessor. And thankful for this this portrait of intercession that Moses portrays that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this story. On one hand, it is a very tragic story. A story of rebellion, of disobedience, of threatened judgment. But on the other hand, it is a marvelous story that reveals your mercy towards sinners. It is a marvelous story that reveals to us the plan that you had from all eternity to use your son as our great intercessor, to stand between us sinful people and you, a holy God. So, Father, we thank you for this story as it reveals more of who you are, reveals how your holiness and your mercy can be reconciled and how you can show compassion and mercy to a sinful people such as us. God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his mediation on our behalf at your right hand. And it's a great privilege and honor, Father, to be called your children and to come to you in his name. Lord, help us to worship you, to live for you, and to seek to to declare your name, your glory among the nations. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us in grace. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.